0: You're listening to Engage, the podcast for Delta pilots. Today's guests: Nick Hofer and George Stralo, Chairman and Vice Chairman of the Scope Compliance and Analysis Committee. Here's your host, Ryan Argenta.
1: I'm here with Nick Hofer, George Stralo. They are both Chairman, Vice Chairman of the Scope Compliance and Analysis Committee. That's a mouthful. In short, scope is dope and it affects our careers. Whether you've been here for 30 years or 30 days, scope affects your job. It affects the industry. It affects your seniority. It affects the seat you hold, the airplane you fly. And if you feel you're stuck in a position that you shouldn't be in, I bet scope has something to do with it. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. You bet. Yeah. George, I want to start with you. How does scope affect each individual pilot, especially if
2: you've been here for A handful of days or months. Everything we do is a seniority-based system and that's what determines everything. Whether you can have a day off or whether you can fly a trip or get a green slip, it all has to do with your seniority. And what SCOPE, section one of our contract, tries to protect is that seniority. And The reason
3: it's section number one is that no other section of the contract is relevant if we're not flying the airplanes. And so SCOPE says that all Delta flying will be done by Delta pilots and there's limited exception for subcontracting with the regionals at joint ventures. But the reason that scope is important to even a guy that's a new hire is that if we're not flying the airplanes, then no other section of the contract applies. And so in times of growth, it's good when we're hiring all these pilots, but we saw during COVID that our partners took on a disproportionate amount of flying through joint ventures, that the regionals did a disproportionate amount of flying in the recovery and that. The main point of scope is to make sure that Delta mainline pilots fly as many as Delta passengers as we can. So it's not necessarily just wide body flying. It's also
1: protecting us from regional flying, outsourcing jobs to foreign carriers. We've heard a lot of buzzwords like joint ventures, co shares, partnership. Delta typically is all about that, right? And you guys are heavily involved in that.
2: What happens when that is not bided by it? The way section one is written is it says all flying must be performed by Delta pilots. And then we give the company exceptions and we say, if you meet these conditions, you will be permitted to do something else. And so I have kids at home and if their room is messy, I go, you cannot watch TV unless you clean up your room. And if they don't clean up their room or they just partially clean up their room, they don't get to watch TV. And so when we have these scope violations, what you typically find is that what the company didn't do is they didn't meet the condition that allowed them to use non-Delta pilots for flying. They didn't clean their room. They didn't clean their room. But they're watching TV. Correct. So what's the remedy? What do you do? What's the process? Right now, the process is that we have to take it to an arbitrator. And this is an uninvolved third party and it's the grievance process. And it's a very lengthy process. The company violated the contract. They didn't live up to their end of the bargain. When it comes to violations of scope, it's
3: the company that's 100% culpable for the violation. And sometimes the violations are intentional and volitional violations. Sometimes they're accidental. But on the scope committee, we believe that every violation needs to be contested. And we fight no matter how big or how small.
2: In our eyes, it's unacceptable. Give me a brief example of a violation of the process where the remedy, very simple sort of cut and dry. One was when we got our first A350 deliveries, there were insufficient pilots trained on the A350. And so instead of the company trying to use Delta pilots to fly that airplane from Toulouse to Atlanta, they went out and they used Airbus pilots. Oh, I remember that to fly that 350 from Toulouse with a Delta flight number and a Delta call sign all the way to Atlanta. And they knew they were violating the contract. And so we took that to an arbitrator and that arbitrator decided that was not something that the company could do and that should there be another violation of this sort, um, there would be consequences.
1: Okay. So the, the company didn't clean the room, but they're watching TV, right? They didn't use Delta to fly a Delta operated flight. What is the remedy?
2: Is it money? Is it a slap on the wrist? What's a remedy? So in that case, that was just one flight, right? right. In the case of, say, Korean Air, where you have Korean Air perform flying, carrying Delta passengers that wasn't permitted in the first place because the company did not live up to its end of the bargain, that, that was a lot of flying. There was a lot of passengers carried between specifically Delta Hubs and Korea on Korean Air. And so what we did is we looked at that flying and said, look, this is the, there's thousands of flights here. Where Delta passengers were carried on planes operated by Korean air to Atlanta, to Los Angeles, to Seattle, all these Delta hubs. And the harm is that in order to perform that flying Delta would need more pilots. And in order to need more pilots, you have to put on an AE and an AE is really the thing where the one place where you as a Delta pilot get to spend the currency that you have which is your seniority number, and you get to chuck it into the pot and see if you can't make a better life for yourself. unlike Southwest, where literally the only choice you have is between what base and what seat at Delta, it's kind of like a create your own adventure. And so you can choose what works for you. And so for one person, they want to get onto the biggest equipment as quickly as possible for another person, it's more important to have time off and have control over their schedule. And so they choose to say on a more junior equipment. The mechanism that makes those choices available to you is the AE process where you get to use your seniority number and find what works for you. So
1: if I understand this correctly, so scope seems pretty convoluted to the layman, to the line pilot, myself included. If I understand this correctly, if the company is outsourcing Delta pilot jobs to its partners, Korean Air, Mexico, Air France, et cetera. Then there are foreign carriers flying Delta passengers. And that should be Delta pilots, which creates more openings, more availability, more vacancies, more captain positions, more wide body flying for Delta pilots, right?
3: Yeah. And I think one of the things too, is that when Delta is putting these passengers on their joint venture partners, they're still making money off it. And so. There's joint venture agreement uh, where Delta, after they true up all the expenses, gets money for each passenger that they fly for a joint venture, but then our partners get money too for flying our passengers. And so it gets even more insidious when you consider that we own large stakes in the partners that we're joint sharing with. So it comes as close to an alter ego carrier. And I think it's important to use the term outsourcing because that's what it is. Uh, We're getting the revenue for flying Delta passengers, but we're not using Delta pilots, Delta flight attendants, Delta mechanics to maintain the jet. You can see how there's a financial incentive to charge Delta brand ticket prices, but to have the flying performed by people that
2: aren't paid Delta brand wages, work rules, schedules, et cetera. I think the most interesting question here is that what we've seen over the past 10 years is that we started in 2009, we had one joint venture. That was the joint venture with Laminere France. And that joint venture was our very first joint venture. And since then we've increased the number of joint ventures to six seven eight uh there's a couple more in the works some have gone by the wayside and you would think that if we have more joint ventures and that's accretive to flying that we then also would have more airplanes and fly to more destinations and that simply isn't the case and so we now have fewer wide body aircraft even though we have more joint ventures and somewhere there something's not adding up
1: so it's and in almost an inverse ratio, my right? more joint ventures
2: equals less wide bodies for Delta. That's correct. So one of the thing that the company says is joint ventures enable more wide body flying. And then the question of course becomes, well, where is that flying? And if we have fewer airplanes now, even though we have more joint ventures, something just simply isn't adding up in the math. another thing too, I think that's important to realize is the work we do on
3: the scope committee, we are not deciding to let the company do this flying. George and I have been doing this a couple of years and all these agreements were signed many years before. So the best we can do is make sure that they're at least complying with the language that exists now. And then our job moving forward is to look back and see where some of the failings in our past language has allowed the company to exploit loopholes and to look towards the future and to write the language in such a way That we eliminate the loopholes and try to change our contract where we actually start recapturing flying instead of letting it go via joint ventures. And I think one of the things that's hard is at this point, joint ventures are here to stay. And so we got to figure out the best way to capture the most flying for Delta pilots.
1: Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, Nick Hofer, George Stralo, let's talk about how we fix this outdated tool.
0: Yeah.
3: Welcome to Atlanta, and hammers and bogs. Engage podcast
0: wants to hear from you. Send us your questions through the MEC DART system at dart.alpha.org. You have questions, we want answers. You're listening to Engage, the podcast for Delta pilots.
2: We're back
1: with you from Atlanta, Georgia. We're talking to George Strelow, Nick Hofer on Scope. How do we recapture flying for the Delta pilot? It seems to me that if you have a ratio of joint ventures to less wide body flying, less routes for us, isn't there a simple, if they fly one, we fly one. If they fly two, we fly two.
3: Yeah. And that would be the simplest measure for us to recapture flying. Cause if we grow one for one the percentage where our flying is at right now we're flying less than 50% of all of our partners put together. So if we do a one for one, we would actually be recapturing flying and so any agreement that comes down in the future needs to have that benefit or that guarantee that our partners won't disproportionately grow more than us and then also on the flip side when they draw down it's got to be a one for one drawdown because it's all good if we grow one for one but if we shrink at a disparate ratio that doesn't protect our pilots either
2: and that's been the case in the past so in the past global financial crisis all the airline flying drops down The pie gets smaller of flying and out of that smaller pie, we then fly a smaller share. And those are, those have been some of the issues that we've been fighting with all along. I think one of the things, and we talked about it a little bit earlier is talking about the consequences. What happens if the company doesn't live up to its part of the bargain? And so traditionally we've been hesitant to spell out a consequence or a remedy because traditionally the way we've looked at fixing some of these things are with money. And so what we've been struggling with is how do we have meaningful consequences that restore the opportunities that were lost for Delta pilots in the event that the company violates a contract. And so that's what we've for is having remedies that try to reintroduce job opportunities on wide body airplanes for Delta pilots using the AE process. Because that's the process where Delta pilots get to spend their currency. That's where they get to make their choice. And if somebody wants to go for the wide body and the lifestyle and the quality of life that comes with wide body flying, they can use their seniority currency, spend that money and move up. If somebody wants to go for quality of life on a narrow body airplane and have more control of their schedule, they get that choice. Also, if you add jobs at the top, because we have a seniority based system, everybody moves up One job at the top lifts all boats and sometimes it's One seniority number that makes the difference between having Christmas off. One seniority number that makes the difference between having a green slip. One seniority number that makes the difference with having your vacation match up with your kids or your spouse's vacation. And so just about everything we do has to do with our seniority number. And when you just pay us money, that doesn't really make you whole because sure, it might account for a component of the income that was lost, but it does not try to reintroduce. The ability to have control over your life or what you hold, what equipment you are on, what base you are in, all those things.
3: The idea is that a staffing-based remedy for a contractual violation with scope means that the harm that is being done, which is the loss of opportunity of Delta pilot jobs with a staffing-based remedy means that you're ameliorating that harm by giving us those wide body jobs it would have taken in that section of the contract to do that fine. They utilize those pilots and that's what scope's supposed to do. Have Delta pilots flying more planes. And right now we're focusing on the wide body jobs because the wide body jobs like are the top of the pyramid. And if one captain goes to a wide body somewhere down the line, that means that a narrow body guy gets to move up and a new hire gets to move up into a more senior position. And so it's one of those things where giving us a cash payment as we've seen in the past is often not even worth a half day guarantee on wide body aircraft for most guys. I think the Air France KLM thing was hundreds of dollars for guys like us, co-pilots. Yeah. So you get like beer money. Yeah. yeah. Beer. Where, whereas it's impacted
2: your vacation, your schedule. The harm that's done is not worth my bucks. No, and this goes all the way down the food chain. If you're a new hire and you live in, I don't know, Minneapolis, and you get based on the 220 in New York, as yeah. you would like to get back to Minneapolis, this is the mechanism that makes that possible. So this is something that moves all the way down to somebody who's in a base that they don't want to be at and they're commuting to a crash pad and get them back to being based where they live okay
1: i've got two questions here kind of playing devil's advocate but delta is currently in a staffing issue right we're in a staffing shortage granted they're hiring they're training and at the same time we're in section six negotiations we're renegotiating things like scope the devil's advocate question is if we're We're trying to negotiate for more wide-body flying, more pilots, more hiring, bigger seniority lists, but we're already in a staffing group. Isn't this gonna put the company in a tough position?
2: The bottom line is this, the starting point talking about scope has been that if you listen to the company, one of the chief complaints is that we don't want you to have a contract that forces us to fly places that we not wanna fly. We wanna use these airplanes and fly them to places where we think we can make the most money. And if you say we need to fly all these planes here, When that's not where the money is, and when we'd rather fly them somewhere else, that kind of ties our hands. And so this staffing problem that you allude to, this is not really a miracle. We have all these airplanes on order. They're all coming. They don't fly themselves. So this has absolutely nothing to do with scope. And that's simply a lack of planning and foresight on the company's part to have the people in place to fly the airplanes that are on order or on hand as we have them. To add on to your question as far as like
3: the training crunch of the company, is if all the union ever did was say, oh, the company's having problems training, we should just give them a pass, then we would never get anything done. And so our idea right now is if Delta is, the brand is so great and the pilots are so great, well then why don't we invest more in ourselves and why don't we do this flying ourselves? We should never let the company use the excuse that it's too hard to do something. Essentially, we would be saying it's too hard for the company to follow the contract, so therefore we should just let them not follow the contract, which is something that no yeah. no union should ever say to anybody. So I think okay. the company will always use training as an excuse, but I don't think it's a valid reason why we can't grow them.
2: No. And I think that's what you'll find is that in scope, we're actually Delta brand advocates because we want the Delta brand to be the one that performs the flying. We want the Delta airplane with the Delta pilots and the Delta flight attendants and the Delta mechanics to be the one that goes out there and flies. So it's not necessarily to see Scope as an adversary to the company. No, we're advocates for more Delta flying. That's what we're trying to achieve. And so what I'm hearing also is staffing issues
3: are relatively short-term. Scope spans a career. Yeah, Delta says when they buy an airplane, it's a 30-year investment. And so to say that we don't have adequate training capacity in the short term next year, that's not an excuse to not make those investments. Yeah. We built a Delta brand with Delta employees, and we ought to keep the Delta brand going with Delta employees is the best way to do it. And we've seen that in some of the recapture of the regional flying. We used to have more 50-seat RJs that were flying. The number of 50-seat RJs is, is going down through attrition. We've seen how the regional networks have not been able to keep up with the Delta network plans, and we're seeing more and more flying come to mainline. And that is something we like to see on the Scope Committee. It benefits our customers, our employees, and our company.
1: Quick break here, gents. When we come back, more on Scope and how it affects your career. Stay tuned. Back in 30 seconds.
0: of Engage is brought to you by the MEC Communications Committee. Check out their new series called At the Table, providing pilots an inside look at what's being discussed at the negotiating table. Find it in your email inbox, on the MEC webpage, or on your company iPad in the alpha folder.
1: Okay, so we're in Section 6 negotiations, we're talking to the
2: company, we're working through the negotiators. What do we need for scope? There's a couple things, and we talked about it already from the standpoint of the committee we think we need to have a remedy that spells out what happens if the company doesn't honor the contract
3: so we would like to strengthen that language and have which inserted into the contract that spells out what happens if the company is not compliance and instead of a monetary penalty for the company or a monetary remedy we would like to see a staffing remedy so that if By violating the scope sections, Delta pilots lose job opportunities. And the way that violation is remedied is that give us those job opportunities that we would have had to to fulfill the obligations of the contract. Secondarily, we'd like to see one-for-one growth. That is to say that if our partners grow, then Delta grows equally. And uh, conversely, if we shrink, we shrink equally. And those two things are fundamental because it protects Delta flying it gives us a share of the growth, allows us to recapture flying if we did a one-for-one arrangement. And then if the company does not live up to its obligations, then there's an immediate response built into the contract to punish the company for not doing that. So that's a remedy that would actually affect and impact all of us. It would remunerate every pilot versus 35 bucks in your pocket. Yeah. Then also it would incentivize the company to follow the agreement, which is what we want, right? Sure. They post a speed limit on the highway, but if you're late, then you're willing to
1: accept the risk of getting a speeding ticket and you say, well, I'll just pay the $200 ticket and I've arrived on time. If the police really want you to just follow the speed limit for a particular safety reason, then the remedy might be different to get you to comply with the speed limit.
3: Yeah. Look, if Delta pilots don't follow the contract, there is an immediate response from the company. And so what we would like to do is build in, into our contract contract, that if the company does not follow the contract, there's an immediate negative response for the company.
1: Let me ask you this. If The company has repeatedly violated scope in particular for the past five
2: plus years, why is it different? Why are they going to abide by this agreement? So some of the lessons we learned is that what we've done in the past is we've given the company a lot of time until consequences come. And so in some cases, in the case of the uh, transatlantic joint venture, at one point in time, there was a four year window before something happens and then We take it to an arbitrator. And then that process with arbitration could be another two or three year window until the results come up. And so we're looking at a seven year span. And so the very first thing we need to do is we need to have more frequent measurements and more immediate consequences. And rather than just writing new language that has something else, we need to have the consequences in there because in the absence of having clear spelled out consequences that say, this is what happens if you don't live up to it we get back into that long-term deal. And so we're trying to compress the timeline and get the remedies in place sooner. And so any new agreement going forward, that's one of the most key elements of any new language, because otherwise we're just rearranging the deck chairs and we're going to get the same outcome. And that's not going to do anybody any.
3: good. Okay. Additionally, yeah, one of the things we seek to do with new contract language is eliminate the ambiguity of the loopholes. If we formulate new contract language now, the company will have less loopholes and be able to exploit the ambiguity less going forward. If all this stuff is codified in writing, it becomes a contract violation versus a contract dispute, which an arbitrator may or may not even find in our favor. With clear contract language and the legal team that we have now and the lessons we've learned over the years in fighting this. We believe the new contract will be more ironclad. And if the company does violate it, it will be a lot easier for us to attain more immediate remedies.
1: But wouldn't it be the same process, right? If you're talking about a non-monetary remedy
3: for a violation and now you go to an arbitrator, aren't we in back in the same corner? Yeah. So I think one of the things too that we need to say that makes, makes this all very clear is that any change to scope has to make scope stronger and better not weaker. Sure. And so as far as the company potentially violating the language, the language would have to contain an immediate cut and dry penalty for violating the contract. So that even an arbitrator would say, well, it says in your contract that the remedy is this. Yeah. Because again, what the company uses right now is that there is no remedy in the contract. So even if the company gets found in violation, then we go back and forth and get mushy solution from the arbitrator who again is trying to satisfy both parties. Whereas if we have a codified penalty or remedy in the contract, then the company has no room to say that it can't do that because then it becomes a more flagrant contractual violation. Yeah. The light bulb just went off for me with
1: that. So I understood in our current contract language, we do not have a defined remedy. If
2: you add the remedy, it's already in the contract. Correct. Case in point is the, we currently are in arbitration with the company for the Korean air violations. And so we bifurcated that. And so what happened in 2019 is we took that to an arbitrator and we said, look, the only thing you need to decide is, did the company violate this, yes or no? That's it. And what do you say? And the answer came back and it said, yes. And so earlier this year, we took that result to another arbitrator and said, the other arbitrator said they violated the contract. You now need to decide. What is the fix? And so now we have to spend a lot of time, manpower, research, and convincing to convince an arbitrator of what it is that we need as Delta pilots in order to be made whole. If we have a spelled out remedy, we've short circuited that entire process. And we're starting at this point right now where it's already spelled out. And let's say we do have an agreement that includes a remedy. Then we take that to an arbitrator. And then the decision is much simpler because it's just about How many people do have to be added and it becomes a data dispute. It is not an interpretation dispute. And that's a completely different kind of ball ball game. Well said. I would the company agree to this. So the main thing that is seeing when it comes to scope is that when it comes to our counterparts at the company, there is none. there is nobody at Delta management that is a person. And so, so the company doesn't have a scope expert like we have, they do not. And and so scope touches multiple departments at Delta. It touches network, it touches revenue management, it touches alliances, it touches scheduling, and it touches flight ops. And so there's many different silos that sort of look at their little slice of scope and trying to get them all to follow our contract is really difficult because half of the time, even when something is. Literally 100% in their wheelhouse, they have difficulty following it. And so that's the difficulty that we've encountered. And what the company says is, look, we're good at revenue management. We know how to make money. We know where to send these airplanes and make money for the company. That's what we want to do. And so if you make an agreement and say 50% of your airplanes have to fly to Asia right now, when there's no money to be made in Asia, what we'd rather do is send more airplanes to Europe and get money there right now that's the company's argument that's their I, I so i'm not making this argument from a scope standpoint i'm making this argument from a company
1: standpoint sure so in exchange for easier to understand or better contract language in the scope agreement and to have a defined remedy that is applicable to them they are willing to exchange that for some flexibility in the flying that's exactly correct because yeah. currently if correct this, but currently we have it broken out into different theaters. We have an Atlantic agreement. We have a Pacific agreement. We have a South American agreement. If there's a JV in the Atlantic happening, we say, no, you have to fly that flight to Paris. And the company could say, we don't want to fly to Paris. We want to fly to Hong Kong.
3: What makes it easier and less complicated is to have it be a global solution where all wide body flying is covered under one unilateral agreement. And so that's what the company gets and. What we get is protection of our wide body flying, guaranteed growth of our wide body flying, one-for-one growth. And then as a backstop, we get a more forceful penalty. The the company is willing to agree to that penalty because they're saying they're not going to violate it. And look, we wouldn't be signing any new agreement if we thought the company was going to immediately violate it. But at least in this case, if they do, there is harsher penalties and more protections than we have now. And that's the point of the whole thing. One of the things that needs to be realized too, is the scope language we have right now is very outdated. This language wasn't created at a time when Delta would joint venture or co share with a partner that it owned large stakes. in. This language didn't exist to protect us in the current environment. And that's why we need to modernize it because we're fighting this battle with old tools. Well, that all
1: makes sense to me. The need to update, modernize our scope agreements, section one of our contract to preserve and protect that currency that is our seniority to protect our careers, our longevity, and be sure to clean your room before you watch TV. Nick Hofer, George Stralo, Scope Compliance and Analysis Committee. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for what you do. We'll have another episode of Engage on Scope and in particular Global Scope and where we stand on contract negotiations. You can be on the lookout for that. This has been Engage, the podcast for Delta Pilots. Thanks for listening. My name is Ryan Argenta. Stay safe and keep the rubber on the road.
0: You're listening to Engage, the podcast for Delta Pilots. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform, and receive notifications when a new episode is available.